Although Edgar Allan Poe's name is most often identified with stories of horror and fear, today's speaker will reveal the less familiar Poe, the one who often goes unrecognized or forgotten, the Poe whose early love of beauty was a strong and enduring draw. Poe's deep worship of all beauty, expressed in an 1829 letter to John Neal when Poe was just 20, never entirely faded, despite the demands of his commercial writing and editorial career. In today's lecture, Barbara Cantalupo will reveal Poe's connection to such visual beauty, his commitment to graphicality, a word he coined, and his knowledge of the visual arts. Barbara Cantalupo is professor of English at the Pennsylvania State University and editor of the Edgar Allan Poe Review. She's published essays in scholarly journals on Poe, Hawthorne, Melville, and other American writers. Her edited books include Poe's Pervasive Influence, Emma Wolfe's Short Stories in the Smart Set, and Emma Wolfe's Other Things Being Equal, as well as a co-edited book with Richard Copley, Prospects for the Study of American Literature, Volume 2. Her monograph, Poe and the Visual Arts, was published last year by Penn State University Press and is available for purchase here today. She'll be signing them after the lecture. She's currently working on a critical biography of Emma Wolfe. So please, on a chilly day, give a warm VHS welcome to Barbara Cantalupo. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, before I begin, I'd like to thank the Virginia Historical Society, the Edgar Allan Poe Museum, Paul Levengood and Graham Dozer for the opportunity to give this talk on Poe as part of the Banner Lecture Series. I would also like to point out that all of the images on Poe in my presentation um, are by Michael Dees, a New Orleans painter, as well as the author of The Portraits and Daguerreotypes of Edgar Allan Poe. And um, Paul sort of stole my introduction, so I'm going to repeat it. I, that's just the way it's going to work. <laughs> Okay, although Poe's name is most often identified with stories of horror and fear, today I want to stake a claim for the less familiar Poe, the one who often goes unrecognized or forgotten, the Poe whose early love of beauty was a strong and enduring draw, who from childhood's hour had not seen as others saw. This last sentiment is expressed in Poe's early poem, Alone, written when he was just 20, but never published in his lifetime. From childhood's hour, I have not been as others were. I have not seen as others saw. I could not bring my passions from a common spring. From the same source, I have not taken my sorrow. I could not awaken my heart to joy at the same tone. And all I loved, I loved alone. In the same year that Poe wrote this poem, he sent a letter to John Neal a New Englander who was a strong advocate for promoting American literary culture and who would become an avid admirer of Poe's poetry. In Poe's letter to Neil, Poe revealed his deep worship of all beauty. I am young, not yet 20. Am a poet, if deep worship of all beauty can make me one. I appeal to you as a man that loves the same beauty which I adore, the beauty of the natural blue sky and the sunshiny earth. This reference for beauty never faded, nor did Poe's desire to be a poet first and foremost. 
But as we all know, their desire was overshadowed by Poe's need to make money, and yet despite the demands of his commercial and writing and editorial career, he sustained a lifelong admiration for visual beauty and the importance of expressing that beauty <coughs> through language. Today, then, we will not look at the sensationalist tales that Poe wrote to appeal to the reading public of his time, stories of men who murder or mutilate their victims, or told tales that provoke profound fear or look into the darkest, darkest psychological depths of human depravity. This is the Poe most of us know, the popular Poe of TV series, movies, and comic books. Instead, this afternoon, we will look at the ways Poe expressed his early and sustained connection to beauty by looking at some of the references he makes to paintings, painters, and the visual aesthetics in his tales, essays, and book reviews. Poe's attentive response to the visual arts manifests itself not only in his references to painters and paintings, but in his writing style as well. As Poe scholar Burton Pollan once said to me in an interview, and I quote, we have to remember one of Poe's creations, specifically the word graphicality. Poe coined it. He felt that the English language needed to be expanded, and of course, he had no hesitation in doing so. Graphicality is one of the things that Poe aimed at in his tales, and to a certain extent, in his poems. It is something an artist can latch onto quite easily. Poe's images are striking and startling in their nuances and particular adumbrations that Poe gives to those objects, images, call them what you will, in language, because they convey something to him that he feels has never been done before. Poe valued the artist's vision as well as writers who were able to create in words what can be seen by what he called the artistical eye. In a review of Alexander Slidell's The American in England, published in February 1836 in the Southern Literary Messenger, Poe applauds Slidell for, quote, riveting the attention of his readers by a succession of minute details. He continues in this vein by comparing Slidell's literary effort with the painterly process. Quote, the touches of painting, which to minute inspection are confusion worse confounded, will not fail to start out boldly at the cursory glance of a connoisseur. In noting that the overall effect of a painting, as seen by a connoisseur, overrides the minute, seemingly confused brushstrokes that produce that effect, Poe also underlines his understanding of how a painter creates illusion and how that process applies to literary technique as well. In the same review, Poe applauds Slidell's literary finesse. Mr. Slidell has <coughs> felt that the apparent, not the real, is the province of the painter, and that to give, speaking technically, the idea of a desired object, the toning down or utter neglect of certain portions of that object is absolutely necessary to the proper bringing out of other portions, portions by whose sole instrumentality the idea of the object is afforded. With a fine eye then for the picturesque and with that strong sense of propriety which is inseparable from true genius, Slidell has given us a few masterly sketches with all the spirit, vigor, raciness, an illusion of a panorama. This painterly method of creating a desired illusion through the manipulation of details is akin to what Poe considered the most important part of the writing process expressed in his philosophy of composition. 
A writer, Poe says, must not only know the denouement before putting pen to paper, but Poe contends he or she must be able to combine various incidents and tones in ways that create a desired effect. Writing that stirs the heart, the soul, or the mind, then, for Poe, requires more than verisimilitude. Poe reiterates this belief in his Marginalia 243, written in 1845. Quote, mere imitation, however accurate, of what is in nature entitles no man the sacred name of artist. This idea is first expressed in his story, The Landscape Garden, published in 1842 and revised with a new title as The Domain of Arnheim in 1847. <coughs> in it, Poe creates the idealized artist in the figure of Ellison. The story reinforces Poe's belief that adaptation, combination, and composition create beauty beyond what nature can produce. In the marginalia entry as well, Poe also suggests that anyone can understand how art differs from nature with this following suggestion. We can at any time double the true beauty of an actual landscape by half closing our eyes as we see it. The naked senses sometimes see too much, Poe claims, but then they always, oh, I read that wrong, sorry. The naked senses sometimes see too little, Poe claims, but then they always see too much. In this marginalia entry, Poe also includes his definition of art. Were I called upon to define very briefly the term art, I should call it the reproduction of what the senses perceive in nature through the veil of the soul. In the landscape garden, Poe takes more time to distinguish between art and nature. In the most enchanting of natural landscapes, there will always be found a defect or an excess, many excesses and defects. While the component parts may exceed individually the highest skill of an artist, the arrangement of the parts will always be susceptible of improvement. In short, no position can be attained from which an artistical eye looking steadily will not find matter of offense in what is technically turned the composition of a natural landscape." Unquote. It is the landscape gardener, Poe asserts, whose artistical eye can transform nature's landscape into one of beauty. The narrator of the landscape garden gives us the portrait of Ellison, someone who through good fortune, that is quite a bit of money, and thoughtfully grounded philosophy of life represents the idealized artistic persona. In the wild, widest and noblest sense, he was a poet. He comprehended, moreover, the true character, the august aims, the supreme majesty and dignity of the poetic sentiment. The fullest, if not the sole power of satisfaction of this sentiment, he instinctively felt to lie in the creation of novel forms of beauty of purely physical loveliness. For Ellison, this physical loveliness is found in the endless forms, in the endless combining of forms of novel beauty. The elements to enter into combination being by vast superiority the most glorious which the earth can afford. In the multi-form and multi-color of the flowers and the trees, he recognized the most direct and energetic efforts of nature 
at physical loveliness. And in the direction of concentration of this effort, or more properly, in its adaptation to the eyes which were to behold it on earth, he perceived that he should be employing the best means, laboring to the greatest advantage in the fulfillment, not only of his destiny as a poet, but of the august purposes for which the deity had implanted the poetic sentiment in man. The narrator not only valorizes Ellison's role as a landscape gardener, but also counters the universal claim that nature's beauty is the most exalted. The landscape gardener can create novel forms of beauty that transform the excesses and defects of nature, proving that in Poe's words, quote, the original beauty is never so great as that which may be introduced. To make his point even clearer, the narrator uses the 17th century French painter Claude Lorraine, born 1600, died 1682, to emphasize this point. Quote, no combination of scenery exists in nature as the painter of genius has in his power to produce. No paradises are to be found in reality as have glowed upon the canvases of cloud. Cloud's paintings had a tremendous influence not only on Poe's idea of beauty, but also on many American landscape painters, including Thomas Cole and Frederick Church, painters whose work Poe saw both in Philadelphia and in New York. In 1844, in 1844 be oh, before Poe left for New York in 1844, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts had a special exhibition of Cloud's paintings called Marine View and Seaport. According to art critic Helen Langdon, Claude Lorraine's paintings proved that nature could smile on man and make him feel a welcome part of a well-ordered natural world. Claude's open vistas and clear, untroubled light produced that sense of uninterrupted harmony and spiritual calm that man has traditionally associated with the term beauty. During the six years Poe lived in Manhattan from 1838 to 1844, a, art, bri excuse me, a vibrant arts community um, emerged in the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. The following slides of works by important artists shown at the Academy during the time Poe lived in Philadelphia will give you a sense of the images that influenced Poe's writing. These paintings by Thomas Cole, who would eventually become the leader of the Hudson River School, were shown at the Academy. This is part of his series called The Voyage of Life, which many of you have probably seen at some point. This is childhood, youth, manhood, old age. Poe also saw paintings by his friend Thomas Sully, known for his portraits. Paintings by Salvador Rosa were also on exhibit. He was best known for his dark and rocky landscapes. Poe refers to Rosa in two of his stories, Morning on the Wissahickon and Lander's Cottage. The next point, painting by Nicholas Poussin must have given Poe pleasure to see in the flesh, as it were, since 
He had read about it earlier in Francis Trollope's travel book, Paris and the Parisians. Poe reviewed the book in the May 1836 issue of the Southern Literary Messenger. Art critic Richard Verdi considers the deluge, quote, an early masterpiece of the horrific sublime, its figures being few and entirely subordinated to the awesome vision of elemental fury of nature. Poe would have been attracted to the painting's sublime quality when he saw it in 1840, although this attraction to the awe of the sublime diminished later in life as he returned to his youthful regard for repose and the beautiful. During the same year that Poe saw this, Poe was publishing the installments of his unfinished novel, The Journal of Junius Rodman, in Burton's Gentleman's Magazine. Although it seems clear that Poe was writing the novel to make money since he never finished it, nonetheless, he concludes passages of landscape description that appear as distinct paintings. Kent Youngquist notes in his book, The Grand and the Fair, Poe's Landscape Aesthetic and Pictorial Techniques, that, quote, Poe's pictorialism aims to produce the effect of a painting, a piquant combination of details that can be seen as within a frame. Here is one such painting from Julius Rodman. The banks sloped down very gradually into the water and were carpeted with a short, soft grass of brilliant green hue, which was visible under the surface of the stream for some distance from the shore, especially on the north side, where the clear creek fell into the river. All around the island was a complete fringe of cottonwood, the trunks loaded with grapevines and full fruit and so closely interlocking with each other that we could scarcely get a glimpse of the river between the leaves. Within this circle, the grass was somewhat higher and of coarser texture with a pale yellow, a white streak down the middle of each blade. Interspersed among it in every direction were myriads of the most brilliant flowers, all in full bloom, blue, white, pure white, bright yellow, purple, crimson, gaudy, scarlet, and some with streaked leaves like tulips. Little knots of cherry trees and plum bushes grew in various directions about, and there were many narrow winding paths which circled the island. Nearly in the center was a spring of sweet and clear water which bubbled up from among a cluster of steep rocks covered from head to foot with moss and flowering vines. Other similar passages like this one was from, from chapter three are included in the six installments of the Journal of Julius Rodman. Clearly, Poe's work was being influenced by the landscape paintings he saw at the Philadelphia Academy of Fine Arts. After six years in Philadelphia, Poe moved back to Manhattan in April of 1844. The visual art scene in the city was rapidly expanded in the mid-1840s with the founding of the New York Gallery of Arts in 1844, the first, um, I'm sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> Um, it, it increased attendance at the American Art Union and the National Academy of Design. The quality of shows at the National Academy of uh, Design contributed greatly to making Manhattan the center of the arts. And just prior to um, uh, this, well, just after Poe left Philadelphia, actually in 1844, the Pennsylvania Academy of Arts burned to the ground. So um, it was kind of, you know, Philadelphia had been kind of the center and then it moved to New York City. Um, here are some of the paintings Poe saw at the Academy in 1844 and 45. Here we have two paintings by uh, Hudson River School painter Frederick Church. Am I going too fast with these pictures or is it okay? It's okay. 
Um, and many paintings by Thomas Cole. This again is from a series that he painted um, called The Course of Empire. First one is Savage State, Arcadian or Pastoral State, The Consummation of Empire, Destruction, Desolation. The next paintings are also by Thomas Cole, view from across Frenchman's Bay from Mount Desert Island, Maine, after a squall. The cross in the wilderness. A picnic party. An old mill at sunset. Not only did Poe attend these art exhibits and write about painting and sculpture, he came in contact with artists through Anne Lynch, a poet who held soirees at her home and invited Poe numerous times. However, much of Poe's exposure to the arts would have come while he worked at the Broadway Journal with Charles Briggs, its founder. Briggs had invited Poe to write book reviews for the first issue of his new journal and then invited him to be one of its editors. Aside from managing the journal, Briggs's main contribution was his detailed and often harshly critical art show reviews. Poe had much in common with Briggs since both were unafraid to be caustic, even with popular writers and artists. The congen uh, congenial working relationship between Briggs and Poe, however, only lasted a few months, uh, ostensibly because of his drinking. Um, and by the middle of the first year of publication, Briggs sold the journal and Poe became its owner and editor. After a break with Briggs, Poe wrote a number of art reviews himself for the Broadway Journal, including one on a Titian painting on exhibit in rooms in Broadway, and another on a small sculpture entitled The Ivory Christ, brought from Italy by C. Edwards Lester. Poe encouraged in his review, quote, all lovers of the true and beautiful in art to make a visit to the Ivory Christ now being exhibited in Broadway opposite the park. In his review, Poe calls attention to the sculpture's absolute truth of entire design. Poe's method of evaluating works of visual art was similar then to the one he used to assess poetry. Poe emphasized the value of accurate craftsmanship since form is the vehicle of artistic expression in the visual arts as well as in writing. His admiration for the absolute truth of the entire design and sculpture is much like his requirement that poetry attend to a keen sense of meter or that the details in fiction all contribute to the overall denouement. And most importantly for Poe, the writer of both fiction and poetry must be concerned with producing a desired effect. In an article with the unlikely title, The Philosophy of Furniture, that Poe wrote and published in Burton's Gentleman magazine in 1840, Poe outlines his visual aesthetics. When Poe discusses the keeping of a room in this essay, for example, his foremost concern um, <clears throat> is its overall effect. The carpet, Poe claims, is the soul of the apartment and like the background of a painting, must be chosen in relation to all aspects of composition. He explicitly states that the critical principles used to judge the layout and keeping of a room must also apply 
when analyzing paintings. Quote, both the picture and the room are amenable to those undeviating principles which regulate all varieties of art and very nearly the same laws by which we decide on the higher merits of a painting. That suffice for the decision of the adjustment of a chamber as well. Poe would have had the arrangement of a room follow the rules of pictorial composition. Rather than linear alignment, the arrangement of furniture should radiate from a focal point in a way similar to the composition of a painting. The aesthetic principles then that Poe applies to room home decoration easily translate into the principles that underlie Poe's responses to the visual arts. Poe was keenly aware as well that the reception is a key to, under, to art. No, sorry, I read that wrong. Poe was keenly aware as well that the reception of art is key, that is the perspective, not, um, not only the aesthetic sensibility of how someone sees it, but quite literally his physical vantage point or perspective. All of that makes the difference in how something is seen and whether or not the attended effect can be brought into play. He uses this concept in his favorite story, Lygia, by embedding a direct reference to anamorphosis, a visual trick that manipulates an image so that it only appears cogent if viewed from a specific vantage point. Poe read about anamorphosis and its corollary, the art of forming aerial representations in Brewster's Letters on Natural Magic, a popular pamphlet reprinted numerous times in America in the 1840s. Poe <clears throat> po played with visual tricks also in other stories such as The Spectacles and The Sphinx. But I want to return now to Lander's Cottage, um, the last story Poe published before his death, um, which makes a note regarding perspective from the very first statement that the narrator makes. He insists that this narrative that he will unfold has no other purpose than to, quote, give in detail a picture of Mr. Lander's cottage as I found it from the point of view that was not altogether, though, <laughs> it was nearly the best point of view to survey the house. From that perspective, he reveals that it's tout and somme struck me with the keenest sense of combined novelty and propriety in a word of poetry. Its marvelous effect lay altogether in the arrangement as a picture. I could have fancied when I looked at it that some eminent landscape painter had built it with his brush. The story begins with the narrator's very specific descriptions of what he sees as he winds down from his day's trek in the countryside, having lost his way to his original destination. The trip down the wild mountainside <laughs> to the domesticity of Lander's landscape garden could be read as an emblem of Poe's journey um, from his regard to the sublime to his return to the youthful regard for repose and the beautiful quote, the natural blue sky and the sunshiny earth. The story can also be read as a culmination of Poe's deference to landscape painting as revealed in the words of the narrator who describes his memory of first seeing the cottage. More importantly, as Poe wrote in a letter to Helen Whitman, he claimed that the domain of Arnheim and Lander's Cottage, its sequel, expresses much of my soul. 
As in the journal of Julius Rodman, the scenic descriptions in Lander's Cottage can be read easily as framed landscape paintings that obliquely reference the Hudson River School painters Thomas Cole, Frederick Church, and Asher Durand. A number of these frame paintings appear in the story, but I'll read just one of them. The fog had thoroughly disappeared. The sun had come again fully into sight, glaring with purplish luster through the chasm that entered the valley from the west. This whole valley and everything in it became brilliantly visible. The sunlight came out through the chasm, tinged all orange and purple, while the vivid green of the grass in the valley was reflected more or less upon all objects from a curtain of vapor that still hung overhead as if loath to take its total departure from a scene so enchantingly beautiful. Descending from the mountains region to the valley where he first sees Lander's cottage, Poe's narrator alludes to this again to Salvador Rosa. Rosa's paintings, as I said, often depict the awe of the sublime with rugged, irregular forms and strong contrasts of dark and light. The landscape with figures painting was shown, as I said, at the Pennsylvania Academy of Art. The shape of Poe's story, however, moves from these Salvadorian images to find repose in the domestic scene as found in the following passage. A precipitous ledge of granite arose to great height some 90 feet as the visitor proceeded southwardly from the cliff. His way softened and sloped to the south. To the north on the craggy precipice a few paces from the verge, upsprang the magnificent trunks of numerous hickories, black walnuts, and chestnuts, interspersed with an occasional oak. Proceeding southwardly, the explorer saw at first the same class of trees, but then less and less lofty and Salvadorish in character. Then he saw the gentler elm succeeded by the sassafras and locust, these again by the softer linden, red bud, catalpa, and maple, yet these again by the still more graceful and modest varieties. Lander's Cottage then signals an explicit change in Poe's visual sensibility, a move away from the sublime to the regard for the beautiful. Poe scholar Thomas Mamet believed that Poe meant to write a triptych with the domain of Harnheim, Lander's Cottage, and another article as yet unpublished. It is practically sure that he did not compose it, but there was some reason to believe, Mamet says, that, that he made some plans for it. This proposed triptych suggested a new, new direction in Poe's writing career, a direction unfortunately cut short by his death. Lander's Cottage then reclaims the aesthetics of the beauty, beauty and signals a renewed desire to move closer to the sensibility of a romantic poet rather than the magazinist he was forced to be. The sensibility expressed in an epigraph to his youthful poem published in 1827 in Tamburlaine and other poems suggests this. How often we forget all time when lone, admiring nature's universal throne, her woods, her wilds, her mountains, the intense reply of hers to our intelligence. It is useful here to recall that Mabbitt's introduction to this poem includes a quote from a letter Poe wrote to um, Rus James Russell Lowell on July 2nd, 1844, when Poe was living in what was then the countryside of Manhattan, which is now the Upper West Side. 
<clears throat> quote, there were epics, sorry, there were epics when nothing yields me pleasure but solitary communion with the mountains and the woods, the altars of Byron. Mamet also includes Thomas Alfred's re recollection that Poe told him probably in the summer of 1849, soon before his death, quote, nature rests me. I always find a calm with nature that I seek in vain everywhere else, and no matter how great my perturbation, she never fails to bring me peace. I want to end this uh, talk with a quote from uh, Richmond's Poe Museum's own Chris Sumter shared with me a recollection of Poe by Elma Mary Letchworth. It was my privilege when quite young, she wrote, to be taken often to see Edgar Allan Poe, to listen to the many discussions between him and literary people as well as to the monologues in which he indulged when with sympathetic listeners. Long and interesting was the talk in the sitting room after luncheon. I remember the little grove by the house seemed a wood of romance to me. I dare say it was only a group of trees, and I sat in their shade with Poe, who interested himself in my education and called my attention to the beauties of nature. Look over your head into the trees, he said as he sat beside me, and see how beautiful is the play of sunlight among the leaves, how the shadow of one leaf falls upon another. I had never noticed these things, she wrote, being a child of the city, but I have often thought that afternoon, uh, I often have thought of that afternoon since when sitting under sunlit trees. This is a far, this is, this Poe is a far cry from the popular 21st century perception of his work as coming from a tortured soul of a tormented madman. As poet Richard Wilbur so generously noted, this approach to Poe and his sense of beauty, um, as he says, quote, enlarges our sense of Poe, reminding us that the creator of the dreadful House of Usher was also an appreciative critic of painting and even of gardens and domestic decor. We are led to see Poe as a discriminating lover of beauty in general and we discover both a greater balance and a richer variety in his literary purpose. And that's it. So if anyone has any questions, I'm happy to engage them. Yes, you did, absolutely. Ostensibly, uh, um, and I'm not sure you know, how grounded in fact this is, but the story has it that when he was at the University of Virginia, uh, he did uh, do what you might call um, uh, drawings on the wall for his roommate. Now, I'm not sure how one knows that, but um, that's the story. So um, that's all I know about that possible, you know, thing. Thank you.
But you're right. I mean, what, what I meant by the parts is that, you know, uh, clearly a painting is made from small brush strokes, but the overall effect is clearly bigger than the whole. I mean, the whole is larger than the sum of the parts. So you, you got it. Yes. Yes. Do I remember correctly that uh, Roderick Usher is a painter? Most definitely. I do talk about that, yes. And, uh, he painted a weird painting. What yes. was that painting? It was, um, some people want to suggest that the painting, which was very atmospheric and with uh, uh, basically a bright light down a long tunnel, uh, was influenced by um, Turner, the British painter Turner. However. I discovered after much research that Turner's paintings did, were never exhibited in the United States, and the only way he could have possibly seen that was maybe when he was a child, uh, possibly. But um, that painting was the one that Roderick Usher, um, you know, uh, and the narrator it finds the most disturbing, uh, is most profoundly disturbed by. Uh, I understand Rene Magritte. Yes. Uh, was a great. Absolutely. One of the reasons I asked Bert and Pollen the question that I gave you the answer to was why are so many visual artists so attracted to Poe's writing? Why do we have so many painters who either illustrate his work or derive their paintings from ideas in his work? And, and so you're right, Magritte, and there are many, Doré, all kinds of, I think there were 700 uh, examples of, of artists who relate to Poe's work. And it's precisely because of that keen sense of how to engage beauty and composition in his own writing and, and also in the images that he creates through language. We have one back here. Okay. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I moved away from the microphone. Sorry. Barbara, how do you think Poe's view of uh, philosophy in general and art in particular differs from uh, Coleridge's? It, it was derived from, I would say, yes, very much so. I don't. I really am not a Coleridge expert, so I can't give you point by point. But he obviously admired Coleridge and drew from him. Poe drew a lot of his ideas clearly from other resources. I mean, he's known for someone who will borrow ideas and then uh, transform them. So his art lay in being able to articulate them in a way that stays with us. So yes, there was a strong connection between Coleridge, but I can't give you the word-for-word -word connection. Other questions? Oh, there's one right here. Poe was not without his critics. And, True. Uh, Rufus uh, Griswold and he uh, got into it a little bit, and it was more personal than business. Uh, what, uh, what provoked that? What can you tell us about it? What, what, can I, what provoked Griswold's an, an, antipathy towards Poe? Yeah. I would say jealousy. Um, I, I'm not sure that Poe had an antipathy. Well, Poe was kind of uh, unhappy when he didn't publish some of his work. But uh, there's also a question about um, why he be Griswold became his you know, uh, executor as, uh, of his work. Um, some people suggest that Mrs. Clem uh, maybe did the wrong thing with that, um, but I'm not going to get into that since I'm not a Poe biographer. But um, he, I don't think he had as much antipathy towards Griswold as Griswold had towards him, out of jealousy. Uh, some, Go ahead. Some of us would like to perhaps have access to uh, some of your quotes as to 
uh, Poe uh, writing about uh, beauty and uh, saying things that we've never heard that he could say before. Uh, is your book uh, going to have some of these quotes? Yes, yes, it does. It I does. didn't mean to give a plug, but... I, <laughs> well, thank I, you anyway. I, I, I appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> well, I, I re we really like uh, this the authentic word that he said is wonderful. Yes, I, I mean, I could have, uh, when I first did this talk, I, it was an hour and 15 minutes, and I said, oh, that's much too long, um, because I was drawn to wanting to give you his words, you know. There, these, these um, what we would call framed paintings of language, there are many of them, and they're all very beautiful, and they're very evocative of the natural landscape, so I had to control myself a bit. Thank you. Okay. Did you, well, I have a question for the audience. Um, did you have that sense of Poe? Did, uh, was this totally shocking? Do you think I'm making it up? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone want to respond to that? <laughs> sure. I think you do a good job. Of oh, persuading? Okay, thank you. Um, it is very important because it, it's, it, Poe really wanted to be a poet. Um, his first works are poets, you know, poems that he published, self-published, and um, he was always someone who um, was just overwhelmed by the need for money, and therefore had to respond to, to the, you know, public reading public of his time, which, as David Reynolds so um, eloquently states in his uh, *Beneath American Renaissance*, was a public that wanted sensationalism. They wanted uh, sensuality. They wanted violence. They wanted to read, you know, these kinds of works. And, you know, um, Berenice is something that Poe, I think, after he finished it, wondered why he had published such a horrible tale, but um, uh, it was out of necessity. But one of the things that I think makes Poe stand out from the Penny uh, pamphlet literature was his ability to include in all of these sensationalist stories an underpinning that of some either philosophical or psychological or intellectual or philosophical idea that um, is there if you look for it. Um, and that's what keeps me interested in Poe's work. Um, uh, as, as a woman, I guess I'm not so engaged in the desire to read about violent things, you know. I don't know if that's a gender-based thing, it is. But, you know, my husband always wants to wear these horrible violent things at night, and I have no, no interest in such <laughs> things. Um, but but, but Poe's work has more than that, and that's, what, that's why he's still around in 2015, and all the penny pamphlet sensationalist writers aren't there. Well, I think some of it had to do with his caustic criticism of other writers. Um, I think his reception um, only—it was only in 1845 when *The Raven* came out that people really started, you know, applauding his value as a writer, and that was short-lived. He died four years later, so I mean, uh, not much time to enjoy that kind of fame. Um, I'm not sure that uh, he did win prizes. He, his stories won prizes before that, so people did appreciate it. Um, but you, as you said, uh, he, after Griswold wrote that horrible um, 
whatever you want to call it, I don't know. Um, Americans tended to dis be convinced by that, that he was somehow immoral, he's this demented person, you know, why, how could that person represent American literature? While, you know, Baudelaire and all the French people were, were very engaged with him and brought his, his image back. Now, it wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century where Poe's, you know, name and work started to regain favor. I mean, he was kept out of the American literature canon for quite a long time. And still, many people don't consider him as part of the canon, you know, with Hawthorne and Melville and uh, Frost and all of the people like that, so. You uh, read, uh, you quoted uh, Richard Wilbur? Yes. Now, wasn't he responsible for sort of rehabilitating uh, Poe's uh, reputation? Absolutely, especially as a poet, yes. He's, he's quite a wonderful uh, poet, and he adm admired and recognized in Poe all of those sensitive things that, you know, people were overlooking. So you're right, yeah. I was really grateful that he was willing to read and, and respond to my book. Um, it was quite an honor to have him say that. So, yeah. Well, he would, would everyone join me in thanking Barbara?